Chapter fifty one, part two of Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arlene Stebbins. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, volume two, by Moncure Conway. Chapter fifty one, part two. On our return to America, 1885, I went with my entire family to visit my parents in Fredericksburg, Virginia, who resided with their youngest son Peter and his family. My other brother Richard came from his farm in Orange County, and our sister Mrs. F. A. March from Easton, and for the first time we had a family reunion. For the first time, too, I had opportunity to make some careful investigations into the history of our region where the Washingtons lived. But my most entertaining search was one described in Harper's Magazine, January 1886, under the title, Hunting a Mythical Pall-Bearer. For twenty years following the war there had appeared in the American and European press an alleged epitaph in Fredericksburg of one Edmund Holder, in which it was said that he had been a pall-bearer of William Shakespeare. I had credited the story in 1865 when in England, had discovered that it was a myth in 1875 when visiting Fredericksburg, but now in 1885 determined to find out the origin of the myth. My aged mother remembered that in her girlhood when driving with her father near Potomac Church, over five miles away, her father stopped and wrote down the inscription on a lonely tombstone. Her half-brother, Dr. J. H. Daniel, remembered the stone, and that it bore the name of an English surgeon. This word was in the mythical Shakespeare epitaph. In company with a lawyer, St. George Fitzhugh, I started out for that region and discovered a sunken grave, very old, from which a stone might have been removed. About two hundred yards away we saw a cabin, and found there a poor widow, Mrs. Alexander, a name once grand in Virginia. She needed a large stone for the back of her fireplace, and a neighbor brought her this gravestone. She did not use it because a tombstone was sacred, and it was set out of doors against the chimney. A few weeks before our visit her chimney had fallen and covered the old stone with debris. She remembered that the name on it was Helder, and sixteen was in the year of his death. St. George Fitzhugh and myself cleared away the debris and found the stone blackened and broken, with the letters H-E and part of the R in the opening H-E-R-E. A week later I learned that the original inscription had been copied for its curious lettering by a New Hampshire soldier, C.J. Brown, during the war, who sent me his copy. There was no white settlement in northern Virginia in 1618 and no doubt Dr. Helder died while on some exploring expedition. The foot-square stone with two letters on it, now in my brother's house in Fredericksburg, is a fragment of the oldest tombstone of an Englishman in America. There was a family of elders in that region, one of whom was a fine portrait painter in Fredericksburg. It occurred to me that a tale might be written on the subject, and the result was my little novel, Prisons of Air but a droll fate befell it. After making a first draft of it, I concluded to submit that to a publisher, and if he liked the plot, to write it in a full and finished way. 
being much occupied with the centennial work i almost forgot the novel until one day i received a letter from a moncure relative in paris madame du Bellay, thanking me for the pleasure she had received from my prisons of air much shocked at this i wrote to the john w lovell company to whom for some reason i had submitted it and discovered that the book had been published several months they supposed it complete and believing i was in europe did not know where to send the proof and thus my tale of which i could have made something was thrust in mere blocked-out condition on the public a beautiful welcome awaited us on our return to dwell in our native land i was invited by eminent citizens of new york to give a course of lectures in the university club and was fairly feted by old friends in order that our two sons already in new york might be with us we desired a large house and found one in clark street brooklyn number sixty two not far from my old friends gordon l ford and his family on one side and henry ward beecher on the other in the early summer we went to the new seaside village of Wiano, where many of our friends had cottages and where all the fairies were dancing and the naiads swimming my wife fell in love with Viano, and I presented her with a cottage there, which she named Pine and Palm, the title of my first novel, which Henry Holt and Company published in New York. Just as my story of Southern life was published, appeared a romance by another Virginian, the story of Don Miff by Virginia Stabney. On inquiry I learned that he was residing in New York. The book filled me with delight, and I hastened to make his acquaintance. He was a very brilliant man, and I feel certain he would have had a notable literary career but for his premature death. My Pine and Palm had a fine success in England, but Virginia Stabney and myself both found that the American people could see no picturesqueness in the Old South, and were rather irritated by attempts to revive the subject. My Virginia cousin, Lucy Daniel Cotley, wrote a tale which I thought powerful when I read it in manuscript but it has never been published, and I suppose she also found publishers not attracted by pictures of antebellum southern life. Mr. Kingdon Cotley, an English gentleman, and husband of Cousin Lucy, called on me in Brooklyn, and left me with a parcel of documents relating to his wife's great-grandfather, Governor Edmund Randolph, the first Attorney-General, and second Secretary of State. I never before realized that dear Aunt Lucy, wife of Justice Daniel, was a daughter of Edmund Randolph. I then made the discovery that Edmund Randolph had suffered the most shocking injustice. I set about writing an article on the subject, but on finding that my friends, the Maguires in Washington, possessed a large number of unpublished letters of Randolph, I undertook the larger work, omitted chapters of history, disclosed in the life and papers of Edmund Randolph. At the Harvard commencement in 1886 I gave the annual address to the graduates of the Divinity School, my theme being the new incarnation of religion which I recognized in the humanitarian tendencies of all churches. In November of that year we were overwhelmed by the death of our younger son Dana, who was just completing his scientific studies in Columbia University. He was the darling of his brother and sister, as well as of his parents, and the bereavement was terrible. We could not bear to live in the Brooklyn house, and I purchased an apartment in New York. Before entering it, my wife and I made a short visit to Boston, where Dr. O. W. Holmes called on us. 
He had shortly before lost a son by the same disease, typhoid, and in trying to console us, broke down and mingled his sobs with ours. It was fortunate for me that I had on hand the work on Edmund Randolph. To this I gave much time and toil, visiting Washington, Richmond, Charlottesville, and the chief historical societies of the country. The work elicited fine reviews and articles, and brought me many grateful letters from publicists. Yet it never paid the publisher's expenses, and of course not one penny did it bring me. I have often had reason to recall a remark I once heard from Mr. Lecky, that mankind are largely swayed by historical personages who never existed. If any man wishes to preserve his faith in our political gods, let him not search into the truth of American history. Very few of them, a braver man might say none, can bear the microscope found in his own correspondence without some smokiness in his halo, and the diabolical horns of the defamed, such as Tom Paine, General Gates, Aaron Burr, are transmuted by unbiased investigation into halos quite as pure as those of the political gods. When I was writing the life of Edmund Randolph, I talked over with George Bancroft the charges secretly made by Timothy Pickering against Randolph, then Secretary of State, on the basis of an intercepted letter written by the French envoy Fauché, obtained from the British minister Hammond. Pickering showed Washington a translation made by himself containing a mistranslation damaging to Randolph. Bancroft said, It is certain that the charges made against Randolph were untrue, and it would no doubt be made clear if all of the intercepted letters of Fauché could be found. Hammond selected only one from the package to be shown to Washington. My dear friend Samuel Fenton in London explored the British Foreign Office archives for those intercepted dispatches, but they were not there. I found three of them in the Pickering papers in the Massachusetts Historical Society, and my friend John Durand in Paris discovered there an intercepted dispatch showing the charges groundless. But it was not until after my Randolph book was published that in examining the Pickering MSS for another purpose, I came upon one of the intercepted Fauché dispatches, which, had it been revealed at the time to Washington, would have overwhelmed the intrigue against Randolph. This dispatch was bound far away from all other papers and dispatches relating to the Randolph Fauché case. It had thus escaped my attention, and no doubt that of the Honorable Robert C. Winthrop. Mr. Winthrop, in an oration on Washington many years before, had spoken disparagingly of Randolph but interested himself to secure for me freedom to use the Pickering MSS. There is no reason to doubt the statement attached to this Fauché dispatch that it was loaned him, Pickering, by Minister Liston, successor of Hammond, and as this was some years after the Randolph affair, the document might easily get among the papers of another year, and so bound up by the Historical Society. It remained true, however, that Pickering, after supplanting Randolph as Secretary of State, had in his hands a document which would have entirely relieved his predecessor while alive from disgrace. So is history made. In a list of debtors to the United States laid before Congress in 1887, a balance of $61,855.07 stands against Randolph. In talking of this with Randolph's grandson, the late P. V. Daniel, Jr. of Richmond, he assured me that Peter Washington, while in the Treasury, had shown him all the accounts with Randolph, proving that he owed nothing. 
after being twice told at the treasury that no such accounts existed an accountant there mr garrison of virginia hearing what p v daniel jr had said searched them out they proved that instead of randolph's owing the united states anything the government owes his heirs seven thousand seven hundred sixteen dollars and sixty one cents before my book appeared i printed the facts in the new york evening post on this my relative senator daniel of virginia induced the senate to order a report on the randolph accounts the report was made some years ago it occurred to me to inquire of the comptroller of the treasury if the old entry of the randolph debt had been cancelled nothing of the kind it was contrary to treasury usage to correct anything transmitted from the past the utmost that i could secure was a promise that beside the fictitious debt entry should be written a reference to the report of january eighteen eighty nine there is no other intimation of the erroneous character of the entry i think it was in eighteen eighty eight that sir edwin arnold visited new york he fell ill in his hotel and mr and mrs andrew carnegie took him to their house after his recovery they invited a number of literary people to dine with him after the ladies had withdrawn the conversation fell on the question of retaining latin and greek in the normal college course sir edwin argued warmly that the retention was essential to the preservation of the elegant and beautiful style acquired by english writers at oxford and cambridge andrew carnegie thereon broke out with a vehement protest against the absurdity of occupying the best years of youth with dead tongues shakespeare knew small latin and less greek he and burns wrote well enough without it and carnegie prophetically declared that the great world growing around these cultivators of classicism was steadily ignoring their existence the writers listened to were dealing more and more with things with realities not with neat phrases and words i knew but little of andrew carnegie but being substantially on his side was impressed by his vigour even eloquence at times and thought to myself that had carlyle been present he would have taken his hand Arnold, however, was not happy during the rest of the evening. I do not believe that any very rich man ever lived before him with so much and such genuine enthusiasm for literature as Andrew Carnegie. In returning to America it was among my hopes to renew some intimate friendships of my youth. Helen Jackson, among the earliest of these, whom publishers had persuaded against her will to adhere to her literary signature H. H. adopted while she was still Mrs. Hunt, wrote me, 1879, a discouraging account of the conditions of literature in America. There is nothing in America to give you an equivalent for what you would give up in London. There is no such thing here, it seems to me, as a literary class. I doubt if there ever will be. It is because our literary men are not great enough, nor numerous enough to create a class, but still more because money is the national gauge of power. I believe if you got at the truth of the inmost feeling of ninety-nine men out of a hundred in what are called the financial circles of America, it would be found to be eight-tenths contempt for literary people, one-tenth pity, and one-tenth respect. They think it is well to have a Longfellow and a Whittier, and a few more like them, because other countries have authors, a thing no country should be without. But for anything beyond that, no. Their only feeling about literature is that it is an uncommonly poor way of making a living. If they had to take their choice between being Mrs. Southworth and Hawthorne, they would be Mrs. S., 
unhesitatingly. She has written fifty-nine novels and made a fortune. That is worth while. When Helen came through London in 1869, my wife and I called on her in her lodgings, and soon after she wrote to Mrs. Conway, Will you not come and see me some day without Monk? I want to know you, if you will let me. Wife, who had never seen Helen in America, was of course captivated by her, and so were our literary friends whom we invited to meet her at dinner. In 1880 we had her in our house at Bedford Park for nearly a week, and in 1884 should probably have accepted the invitation of Mr. Jackson and herself to visit their unique home at Colorado Springs, but for the accident that befell her June 28. She wrote to me merrily about her shortened leg and crutches in October, but in the summer following we could only send messages of love and grief to be read as her eyes were closing in death, August 11, 1885. I was astonished in reading obituary notices of Helen Jackson to observe that none ascribed to her the famous Saxe-Holm stories in any decisive way. Soon after they began to appear she told me that she wrote them, but begged me not to betray her secret during her life. I regarded the secrecy as a caprice, but told her I would keep it, though I would not positively deny her authorship. This was in the summer of 1875 when I met Helen in New York. In November, when I was lecturing in Chicago, I was entertained in the house of Mr. and Mrs. Lewis, who assured me that the Saxe-Holm stories were written by a friend of theirs in that city, who was the friend also of Mrs. Celia Burley, whom I knew. It occurred to me that Helen, in order to give her denial of the authorship technical veracity, had persuaded some friend to write some pages of the work, and wrote to her what Mrs. Lewis had said. In reply, she wrote to me the subjoined letter, dated at Colorado Springs, November 16, 1875. Dear Monk, I am glad even of a lie which made you write to me. The history of the false claimants to the S.H. stories is long and amusing. When you are in New York, go and talk with Gilder about it. There is another young woman in New York who swears she wrote them, and her patron and friend, a worthy jeweler in the Bowery, has been to Scribner's and pressed her claim and actually carried them another story to prove her to be the author. Of course, the story was trash, even worse, for it was full of misspelling and bad grammar. But her friend still believes her. Why, he says, I've known her for years and years. She's the next best woman to my wife. This woman whom you have just run against in Chicago must be an audacious creature. For a long time ago, two years or thereabouts, Celia Burley published a letter in the Woman's Journal setting forth her claim, and I wrote to Celia Burley, signing myself S.H. and sending the letter through Scribner's, accompanied by a note from Mr. Seymour, guaranteeing the genuineness of the S.H. signature. I begged Mrs. Burley not to allow her friend to persist any longer in a deception which must sooner or later cover her with disgrace, etc. The letter, accompanied as it was by a note from the Saxe-Home publishers, could not have failed to convince Mrs. Burley. Whether she had the moral courage to let her friend know of it, I cannot be sure. But I think she would. I asked her to acknowledge the receipt of the letter, writing to S. H. in care of Scribner's, but she never did. Possibly she never received it. Last autumn a Mrs. Catherine Gray of Pennsylvania wrote a letter to the Commonwealth, making the same claim for a friend of hers. I wrote as before, but had no answer. Colonel Higginson says I shall get into trouble some day, as I have so positively denied the authorship, 
but I think not, because I intend to deny it till I die. Then I wish it to be known. He is really the only man who can swear I wrote them. He read the first three or four, page by page, as I wrote them. Mr. Jackson can swear to Four-Leafed Clover and Tourmaline, for I read those to him page by page as I wrote them out here, and I am going to get to work on another as soon as we are established in our home. It will be either the Lady of Ensworth County or Mercy Philbrick's choice. Now you can say to the Lewises every word of this except my name. That you must withhold. All goes well and three times well. I am profoundly glad. I believe the best part of my life lies before me, even now, if only I can be well and strong. I have only one regret, that is, that I did not see two years ago that this thing was best and right. I wish from the bottom of my heart you could see Mr. Jackson. I believe you would recognize him, and be glad for me. Think what it would be now, to come and stay once more under my roof, and drive with me through the garden of the gods. I don't believe there is anything in Egypt so solemn or so grand as these red sandstone towers here. I have a paper in the next Atlantic. You must read a symphony in yellow and red. It is a feeble word for the Colorado colony. Now, write again and say that you do not believe I am S.H. at all. I wrote to the Chicago family, but cannot remember any reply, and indeed it was absurd to expect people to denounce an acquaintance as an impostor for claiming the authorship of a work on the accusation of an anonymous person, supported only by a conceivably interested publisher. On December 15, Helen wrote again, urging me to give my lectures at Denver and visit them, and incidentally asked if I received her long letter setting forth how I really did write every word of the Saxholm stories and interesting facts relative to the claimants. In a letter of January 14, 1877, Helen wrote me about her novel, Mercy Philbrick's Choice, in a way that revealed such sensitiveness to criticism that I better understood her anxiety to conceal her authorship. I am quite at sea about the book, and feel, I must say, less heart to write another than I wish I did. I honestly tried my best to write a good story. I honestly thought it was a fairly good work. But the Saturday Review, the Nation, the Literary World, all abuse it. Of course, there has been a great wave of adulation, but from inferior sources. Warner and Curtis are the only men of standing who have praised it and I have an unfortunate but unconquerable tendency always to doubt the praise and believe the blame. I saw it quoted from a letter of yours somewhere that it was the cleverest book recently printed in America, and that gave me pleasure. And Hattie Preston wrote a positive panegyric on the book's style and quality for the Atlantic, and Howells accepted it, but it does not appear, and I think it will not. Meantime the story sells steadily, it is now in its eight thousand. I have had great fun in discussing it. Having intimate friends say, What utter trash! Don't you think so? I think it is not all universal, the notion that I wrote it. The new Saxholm, a short one, which begins the next Scribner, will probably give rise to more interesting discussions and wise sayings. You will see that plenty of critics will say, now it is made plain that Saxholm was not the author of Mercy Philbrick's choice. Nothing could be more unlike this story and that, etc. Nothing could, that is sure, and the short story is the best. Perhaps I can't write a long story, but I mean to try once more. Colonel Higginson said of Mercy, 
It is much stronger than any of the Saxe-Holmes, and far better written. Helen, in these tales and in her poems, could not get her intimate friends out of her mind. She wrote for them, and received their praise. She wished to find out how they would impress persons who had no personal knowledge of her, or even whether the author was man or woman. Hence the secrecy to be removed after her death. Then I wish it to be known. End of chapter 51 Part 2